You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, today as we turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 28, we come to the final of Luke's chapters dealing with the spread of Christianity in the first generation of the church. And of course, there's been a lot that has led us up to this particular moment, but right now we are following the ministry of Paul the Apostle throughout the world. And really, Paul's call from God upon his life was to be a witness to the Gentile world. And for him to preach the gospel in Rome was sort of the exclamation mark, it seems, in Luke's mind upon the fulfillment of that ministry. He, of course, had pastored in Antioch and had been a an apostle on various islands and continents, but to bring the gospel to Rome, the epicenter of the culture at that time, seems to have been a huge mark in the mind of Paul, in the mind of Christ, and in the mind of Luke, our author. Now, in going to Acts 28, we remember, of course, that Paul has now been traveling to Rome. Chapter 27, a very nautical chapter, dealt with the shipwreck, the eventual finding of the island of Malta out in the middle of the Mediterranean and running the ship aground. And, and, and the various passengers, almost 300 of them, grabbing boards and planks and things that could float that would carry them to the shores of this island, which this chapter will tell us is the island of Malta. So the idea is they are still journeying to Rome, but here uh, they are taking a pit stop, if you will, where for three months they will be able to wait out the winter until they find a ship able to go to Rome. So as everybody escaped the great storm, after being out at sea for weeks, not really knowing where they were and in the middle of this massive storm, they, at the end of chapter 27, were all brought safely to land. And Luke records in verse 1 of chapter 28, After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Now, I've already mentioned Malta, but just a few details about it. It's, it's a very small island, about 60 miles south of Sicily. So they are getting closer to Italy, closer to Rome. Uh, it had a few different good harbors and was ideal for trade. So it became a significant island, but it was very small. By landing on Malta, what we know is that within two weeks, this storm had carried them 600 miles from Fair Havens at Crete all the way south to where they were nervous that they were going to run aground on the Sirtis Sands in northern Africa to now coming to Malta, uh, again, 600 miles away. Now, the question, of course, is why 
did God allow uh, them to go through the storm and then ultimately here to have this pit stop in Malta. And we're going to see that there's ministry that is awaiting Paul and his companions there on this island. So Paul was called to Rome ultimately, but God first had Malta within uh, his heart. Now, this is important, I think, for us. Not that this is the only place that we would discover this. This is a truth, though, that is illustrated through God sovereignly bringing them to the island of Malta. And and the truth is simply this, that God cares about the large and the significant, the far-reaching, the strategic, like Rome. But he also cares about the small and the rarely visited and the out of the way and the almost seemingly insignificant like Malta. You know, Rome, of course, was at the heart of the entire empire. And so when Paul said, I must preach the gospel in Rome, you know, everybody listening would have easily understood why he would want that. You know, that's an important place. That's where you should go. That's where you should strive to to head to. But if he had begun saying things like, I must go to Malta, probably the people in his life would, would say, Paul, I, we, you know, we get that you love people and everything, but that just doesn't seem to be a good use of your time. But God wanted Paul to go to Malta. Now, this is the heart of the Lord, and we see this so often demonstrated in the life of Jesus. You know, whether it was the woman at the well in Samaria, whether it was his calling upon Levi's, life or Zacchaeus's heart, whether it was the sinful woman at Simon's house or the 38-year-old invalid at the pool of Bethesda, whether it was Nicodemus or the woman caught in adultery, so often Jesus had a personal, private encounter. It seemed small. It might have even seemed insignificant, but it was not insignificant to the people that he reached. You see, the people there on Malta, although a small little island, they would never forget this visit from Paul with his gospel to this island. And so I think this helps us to unearth the heart of Christ in being willing to go to anybody that the Lord would ask us to go to. And Paul is going to express his deep Christian maturity in this chapter by, even though he understands that he's called to Rome, he's still very willing to serve in Malta because he understands that he's called to people. Whether they're Roman or Maltese, he's called to everyone. So they land there on the island of Malta. It says in verse 2, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. And When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, one of the first things that we observe is the service of Paul. You know, they get there on the island. The native people are kind to them. Unusual kindness, it says. They built a fire. And Paul, he begins serving everybody just like the native people are serving everybody. He 
goes out and gathers a bundle of sticks and puts them on a fire. We're watching this amazing servant of Christ. And I think sometimes in our minds we forget the the situation here. We we imagine Paul, you know, as a man in his early 30s, you know, strong and healthy and just helping everybody out, but at this point he's in his mid 50s at the youngest, perhaps even 60 years old at this time. And has been serving Jesus now for 30 years. So, you know, 60 years old in that era is a lot older than 60 years old even today in our Western culture. So this man is aged, is what I'm saying, and experienced as well in the service of Christ. Yet he is still there gathering sticks for this fire. He is still serving. You know, his word out there on that boat had basically saved the passengers, the crew. His warnings about what would happen and his warnings about the soldiers who were trying to cut loose the the skiff, you know, positively benefited, saved the people on that boat. But in the midst of all of that, his age, his experience, and the victory that they had just won because of Paul, he could have used that as a card to say, Man, I'm going to sit this one out, but still he served. I think that he learned this, of course, from his Lord. Jesus is the servant of all. He's the one who, on the night that he knew that he would be betrayed, girded himself, his garments, tied them up like a servant, and began to wash the feet of his disciples. And, of course, Christ is the one who told us in Mark chapter 9 that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, in the middle of this service, this viper jumps out. Luke is careful to record that it was because of the heat. In other words, it was not because of the devil or some kind of false god like the islanders would believe, at least for a moment. It was simply because of the heat. This was a natural thing that that had occurred. This snake uh, had been you know, stiff and all of that because of the cold, and now it jumps out of the fire because of the heat. And it fastens onto Paul's hand. Now, there would have been a temptation at this point for Paul to say, you know, what now? I've been serving, I've gone through this storm, I've gone through this shipwreck, and now, to top it all off, this viper has come out from this fire and has bit me. But instead of doing that, Paul would do something else that would lead to great opportunities and open doors. I think instead of saying, what now, so often, we should expect that in times like that, when we might say, I can't even handle one more thing, that when the one more thing comes, we might be ready to experience one of the more beautiful and grace-filled moves of God during those times in our lives. Now, when the native people, verse 4, saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Now, I want you to observe a couple of things. First of all, notice what the native people began to think. And the phrase native people is an interesting phrase because it literally translates barbarian. Uh, It's not that these people were uncivilized, but they were non-Greek speaking. 
so they weren't savages or uncultured, but they didn't speak Greek. They weren't a Greek-oriented culture. And so that's why they would be thought of by Greek-living people as barbarians. But the fascinating thing here is that these island native people, they their first reaction is to say that justice has not allowed Paul to live. All the way out there in the middle of the Mediterranean, they have a sense of right and wrong. They have a sense of justice. Now, they're ascribing it to some kind of false god or some kind of mystical law of the universe. Justice has not allowed him to live. But it's fascinating to consider that all the way out there in the Mediterranean, they had a sense of right and wrong. They had a sense of law. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. You know, because sometimes we might wonder, what about the islander? Out there in the middle of nowhere, no one has preached the gospel to them. What about them? Well, Paul talks about them in Romans 2, verse 14 to 16, when he said that Gentiles who do not have the law, you know, no one's ever told them what is right and wrong according to God's word. He said, by nature, they do what the law requires. So when they do that, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So when a married couple stays faithful to each other in a culture that's never heard that you shall not commit adultery, when they stay faithful to each other, they're actually living out the law of God. So when they are unfaithful, they are breaking the law that has been revealed to their heart that mirrors the law of God. He goes on to say in Romans 2, verse 15, that they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Well, their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day that when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So again, that law, although it has not been preached to them, it is written on their hearts. And here we see that there was a law written on the hearts of these native people. They understood that there was justice, that there was right and wrong. Interestingly, however, they did what so many of us do, and they had developed justice into legalism. They believed that some kind of evil that had come from Paul's life had actually been the cause of this catastrophe uh, in his life. They believed that a man's miniature catastrophe is the result of his personal evil, that what Paul was enduring was a result of something that he had done personally. Instead, they should have realized that there was a grand scale evil that had occurred, and that was the fall of man, that when Adam sinned, death and catastrophe and snake bites from a fire unfolded as a result of Adam's crime. Now, for Paul's part, we notice that he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Now, in our modern Western world, we probably love that phrase, shake it off. And I remember my dad used to say that to me when I was learning how to play baseball and sometimes, a, you know, Another pitcher would be a little bit wild and not have good control, and he'd hit you while you're up at bat, not on purpose, but, you know, it'd hurt. Shake it off would be the thing that my dad would say. Shake it off. You could shake it off. You know, you're fine. You're okay. Shake it off. You know, put some dirt on it. You'll be okay. 
Here, Paul shakes off this viper. I think that this stands as a great little illustration for us in life. I think it would be good for us to a little bit more often shake off the things that bite us. I think sometimes in our society and culture, we indulge in a little too much self-hurt. And sometimes our self-hurt can become our new identity. But Paul doesn't walk around saying, I'm a viper bite victim. No, he just shook it off. And, you know, once we do that, once we embrace a hurt as part of our identity, it's very difficult because it's hard for us to move on from that. It's hard for us to move on from the hurt because it's now part of us. It's who we are. It's hard to get past it because it's so intricately woven into the fabric of how we feel about ourselves and, and who we are. So Paul was a man who forgot what lay behind and strained forward, and he seemingly even applied that to a snake latching onto his hand. So I love it. Shake it off. Now, they, the islanders, were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So they knew that it was a poisonous snake. That's why they waited for him to die. But he didn't die, and so the fickleness of man is on full display there because they go from one extreme to the other, thinking that justice killed him, to now, on the other side, saying, nope, he is not being killed by justice. He himself is a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place, there were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. So now Paul, after the snake bite, he begins to publicly minister there on the island. You see now the door that God was opening for Paul through that difficulty, through that trial. That was what God was doing through the what now experience of this snake latching onto his hand. And this specific instance is mentioned of... The chief man of the island, this man named Pub, a man named Publius, his father was sick. And he was sick with the fever and dysentery. Now, I want to read to you the Webster's definition of dysentery uh, with my apologies. A disease attended with inflammation and ulceration of the colon and rectum and characterized by griping pains, constant desire to evacuate the bowels, and the discharge of mucus and blood. When acute, dysentery is usually accompanied with high fevers, which is what this man had. It occurs epidemically and is believed to be communicable through the medium of intestinal discharges. In a word, that's gross. And Paul goes to this man and he prays for him, visits him, and puts his hands on him, and he is healed. I try to paint that picture, read that definition, because it's fascinating and beautiful to me that like Christ, Paul was willing to put his hands upon those who were unclean, those who were sick. He was willing to interact with human beings. Now, Christ, of course, did this with people like lepers. And, you know, the attitude of Christ and being willing to interact with the lepers 
was actually something that was foreshadowed in the book of Leviticus. Because Jesus is our our priest on this side of the cross, but in the Old Testament era, the priests were given instructions on how to interact with a leper who thought that he was now over his leprosy, was now clean. And the descriptions there in Leviticus 13 and 14 are actually rather severe and grotesque. There's a lot of inspection that is happening where the priests were interacting with boils and growths and skin conditions, and they were looking and touching and observing. And I have always felt that that has spoken to us in modern times about the need for us to be willing to interact with, you know, less than ideal circumstances and situations and people in the name of serving Jesus Christ. So Paul, like Jesus, our priest, was doing priestly work here and putting his hands on this man and and healing him. I would encourage you to allow Jesus to perform his priestly work in you, for he wants to touch your life, but also allow Jesus to perform his priestly work through you. Now when this had taken place, verse 9, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So probably these miracles led to great gospel preaching. Luke doesn't really give us the record of that, but you know, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, miracles are, were primarily used to open up the way for the gospel. So the assumption here would be that they preached the gospel during the three months on the island. And after the three months, verse 11, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, likely a grain ship from northern Africa, with the twin gods as a figurehead. The twin gods were Castor and Pollux, the sons of Zeus. And and the irony is just beautiful, because here you have these fake gods carrying the apostle who worships the real god to the most important city throughout the world so that he can preach about the real gospel. Putting in at Syracuse, verse 12, we stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Petuli, which is 152 miles south of Rome. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. So they they find Christians there, probably at this point on the outskirts of Rome. It may be more accurately said they were getting closer to Rome. Now, this would not be a total surprise, Because Paul had actually written to the Christian church in Rome already at this point. He'd written the book of Romans three to five years earlier. uh, He had written that book. So he knew that there were Christians there. But imagine the encouragement upon his heart when he found Christians this far out from Jerusalem and Antioch that were willing to, to love him and interact with him. And the brothers there, verse 15, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius, which is a small market town uh, 43 miles from Rome, and also three taverns, which is 33 miles from Rome, to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So Paul was greatly encouraged in his heart at not only the sight of the brothers, but the willingness of the brothers, the eagerness of the brothers to spend time with Paul. 
And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So a dream is fulfilled, and Paul arrives now finally in Rome. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So Paul does something Uh, beautiful here. He's on house arrest, so he can't go to the synagogue like he would often do when he went from city to city. So instead, he called for the local leaders of the Jews. And as a Pharisee uh, and a member of the Sanhedrin, potentially, Paul had a lot of clout. So a lot of them came and filled up his house. And he, you know, confessed to them a few different things. He presented his case. And his case was fivefold. Number one, that he was innocent of damaging the Jewish customs. He said, I did nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. Number two, he told them that the Romans thought that he was innocent. He said, when the Romans examined me. And number three, He said, the Jews gave me no choice but to appeal to Caesar. He said, I was compelled by them to appeal to Caesar. And then he said, number four, that he wasn't there to battle Israel. He said, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. So he's saying, look, I I have nothing against Israel. And then number five, he said, the real reason for my imprisonment is because of the hope of Israel. That's why I'm wearing this chain. I have been waiting for the Messiah. I am now preaching the Messiah. I believe that I've found the Messiah in Jesus. And that is why I am in this chain. Paul continually, like Luke did, tried to con- demonstrate Christianity as a fulfillment of Judaism, not a rebellion from it. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now, it's possible that they hadn't heard about Paul, but one still wonders if they were being truthful. You know, How could they really be unaware in Rome about Paul? It seems that some Jewish leaders would have sent some word, but here, at least, their confession is that they had heard nothing about him, and they said, we want to know about this sect. And so when they had appointed a day for him, verse 23, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So he gave them a beautiful teaching all day long, referring to many of the scriptures that we've already referred to in some of Paul's previous messages. And some of them were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. He said, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, 
go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart is grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Now, the one word or the one statement that really set this group off or made it a moment of decision was, again, when Paul referenced the Gentiles in verse 28, basically saying, God told me to go preach the message of the Messiah to the Gentile world. It's fascinating, though, that he uses the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah from Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, to describe the people of Israel. This is not the first time in the Bible or in the New Testament that this, that this has been done. Matthew used it in his gospel to describe the reason that Jesus spoke in parables. Uh, John used it to describe Israel's rejection of her Messiah, and Paul used it this way as well in Romans chapter 11. So all of those passages are in agreement. Paul is using Isaiah 6, 9 to 10 to say, I tried to bring the gospel to the Jewish world, but their minds, their hearts were blinded. He lived there after they heard that message two whole years at his own expense. Now in verse 29, it says, And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. He lived there. Verse 32, whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So largely due to the generosity of the church in Philippi, Paul was able to pay his own way there on that in that house arrest. And for two years he proclaimed and he taught. These were full years of ministry. During those two years, he would teach Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians, and would send those to the churches, would write those letters. Many fellow laborers would come and fellowship and learn from him. And he was proclaiming and teaching, as it says there in the final verse. But there we have the ending of the book of Acts. I think that it awkwardly stops because, well, Paul's life went on. Uh, he more than likely was released because no charges were ever filed against him, but then rearrested later when Nero turned against the Christians. I think it also stops here awkwardly because Acts is not about human characters, and we're meant to understand that with this abrupt ending, that this was more about a transfer of God's kingdom, that the kingdom message went from Jew to Gentile, from Jerusalem to Rome. So now we've seen the spread of Christianity, but I think it also has an abrupt stop because it is not meant to be a completed story. We still have work to do. We are still to be connected to that church there in the book of Acts. And so let us go forth and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth and make disciples as Christ has commanded us. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.